Hey, you're still here at George Mason University. I'm here today with a group of colleagues for our first article club in quite some time. Um, we're going to be talking about a really interesting paper written by Ben Williams and Mikhail Pointerstead. And the title of that paper is Dining with Michelle Serres, Physical Education and the Ethics of the Parasite. Uh, the link to the paper is in the show notes, and I highly recommend you read this paper uh, because I, I found it really innovatively written. Um, so let me go around the, the Zoom screen here and introduce everybody so you can hear their voice and you can pair that voice with who they are. Uh, so we are spanning, I think, almost all but the West Coast time zone in the U.S. So let's start uh, all the way to the West. Uh, Aaron Santeo from the University of Hawaii. Uh, thanks for coming, Aaron. She's there Aloha, everyone. Thanks for, so for having me. Uh, and then moving across to New Mexico, Tori Shiver from the University of New Mexico. Hey, Tori. Hey, everyone. Happy to be here. And then moving further east in Illinois, uh, Kevin Richards, University of Illinois. Hi, everybody. Happy to be here again. I always enjoy these conversations. Looking forward to this one. And then in my time zone, sharing my time zone, Michael Hemphill from the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Hey, good to be here. All right. So now you know everybody's voices. Uh, so as is tradition, uh, the person that picks the article has to give some rationale of why uh, they picked the article. So here's my explanation. Uh, first of all, uh, the article title caught my eye. Um, I didn't know there are much many articles in physical education about parasites. Uh, and then I read the abstract and it said the paper is written in the format of a six course meal. And I was like, did I, did I read that right? Like, how is this a six course meal? And so then I kind of started reading in and the paper talks about outsourcing in PE, uh, which I'm interested in. And the way it was written in the very beginning, I just couldn't look away. Um, I'm very envious of people who are able to write in this way and have the courage to put out an article that is completely different from the preset format that we all write in introduction, literature review, theoretical framework, methods, that kind of format. And um, I honestly think that if grad students read a paper like this when they're early on in their career, they can see that academic writing doesn't have to fit that specific mold. So I wanted to uh, see if the people on this call also have that kind of same reaction or different reaction. So I wanted to bring this up as one of our article clubs that I don't think we've had one in almost a year, maybe maybe nine months. But um, so I wanted to open it up to you all. Um, what were your kind of initial takeaways when you started uh, reading it or read the abstract and saw that this article was presented as a six course meal. Um, what did you think? I, I really thought that this was neat. Uh, I thought that it was, it was different. It was unusual. It was innovative, thought provoking, attention grabbing. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head, Risto, uh, that the, the graduate students reading something like this early in their degree programs can see that academic writing doesn't always have to look the exact same way. Um, and, and that's good because even across different research methodologies and traditions, there are different uh, approaches that are more or less accepted in writing. So in qualitative tradition, for example, it's very 
common, if not expected, for researchers to situate themselves in the writing using first-person language. That's becoming more qu- uh, popular quantitatively, but but isn't at the same point yet. Um, you know, so it just shows that not everything has to look a certain way. Michael, I don't know if you remember this, but this reminded me a little bit of a Kathy Armour paper that we read back in grad school, where it was like musings about professional development, and it opened with like this narrative of her sitting on a beach reflecting. Um, and it just, it, it struck me as just a different way to communicate. Yeah, I remember. I I was wondering who, I don't know anything about uh, the first author, Ben Williams. And so I wondered if he might be someone who studied with Mikhail or, um, uh, you know, was just a colleague. I it strikes me as a type of writing style that lends itself to like a senior scholar. Um, and I don't see that happening. It's hard to imagine early career people taking those kind of, I guess I'll call it risk, um, to do things in a different way. Um, so it made me wonder about the positionality of the first author. And if he, he was in fact someone who was an early career person who was able to do that, of course, by partnering, but, but still, um, um, leading this thought process. And then I wondered about the um, kind of disciplinary backgrounds, uh, you know, maybe some like sports sociology in there, some historical perspective really coming through and uh, some of the kind of coursework and things that someone might have to be drawn to this format of, of writing. Yeah. So always interesting to see, like, like I've never heard of, and I'm hoping that I say this, correct is Michelle Ceres and I've never heard of this person I don't understand any of the any of the writing or I have no background of it but I I loved how approachable it still was and uh, the authors talk about how this person writes in a very complex way and there are scholars who have tried to unpack his writing but even so it was maybe a dense comment and then it was kind of explained really well through this narrative tone uh, Tori, what do you what do you think? Uh, I was going to add that something I really enjoyed about it was the idea that it brought in outside thoughts and perspectives. So similar to you know what Michael was saying, I think I get so siloed in our research in our field at times. So it's excellent to hear different perspectives, like bringing in a philosopher that I probably wouldn't have picked up the parasite and read it for for fun for myself, for good or for bad. So I appreciate thinking about things a little bit differently and thinking about graduate students, you know, early career, potentially graduate students may not take the risk. And I'm thinking about myself in that role. How can I encourage my students to take that risk or show them how this is even possible? Cause I've never done it. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate having an example, not only for them, but for myself to move forward with and talk about things in a different way. Yeah. yeah and oh, go, go ahead. I just saw Aaron on mute. I've already spoken to so go ahead, Aaron. I was just going to kind of echo, I mean, everything that everyone has said, I definitely agree with. And I think that, you know, as I was reading it, Tori, it kind of took me a little bit out of my comfort zone because we become complacent and kind of, you know, our reading of research and what we expect research and articles to be. And so it was definitely a surprise as I opened it and began reading it and and kind of the format that it was in and just thinking about the creativity that these authors have um, to me was just amazing because I think 
you know, it was helpful for me to take a step back and say, wow, like we could really like write something like this if we had the creative bones. I don't know if it's for me, if I would be able to pull it off, but they definitely did a good job of conveying the message and and being able to be creative. Yeah, Kevin. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, uh, you know, there's we, we've had a little bit of conversation here about about the um, the boldness or the courage that it takes to write like this, especially for somebody who's newer to the academy. Um, you know, I, I don't think that the way that we do peer review is perfect, but I do think that one thing about having blind peer review that should provide some semblance of of uh, relief to that is that. In, in, in theory, now, clearly it doesn't always work out this way. Sometimes you read a paper as a reviewer and have an idea of who the author was, even if it's not explicitly stated. But in theory, your identity is protected. So it shouldn't matter if you're a tenured full professor or, or a, a graduate student. It, it should be the quality of the work that's being judged. Again, system's not perfect. There are flaws. But but to anybody um, early in their career who who's thinking about wow you know this really feels like it aligns with more of who I am but I just don't know if I can write in this way and, and have it be taken seriously because of, of who I am mm-hmm. um, I remember when I was in grad school I was thinking about sending something to Quest and I kind of had this idea in my head at the time that that Quest is this place that you know at the time published conceptual theoretical work, you wouldn't go there unless you were like a leader in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I felt like I felt really intimidated by that, but ended up submitting a paper there that got accepted. And, and that was a really validating experience for me. So take those risks, I guess, is the is the message that I'm coming uh, to. Yeah. And, and I look at like, if you saw this paper, and the journal was blinded to you, like you didn't know what journal it was, I would put in order Sport Education Society, then Quest as the two places that I feel like this would have been in. And it's it's published in Sport Education Society. Um, but I feel like that's the place in our field that has the flexibility to do these types of papers and they will get peer reviewed in a way that they're not going to get trashed. Like, oh, this is not what you write in an academic journal where... I feel like sport education society is like, okay, we're, we're willing to entertain this. Let's send it out for peer review and, and see how it works. And I, um, you know, and I think that quest is quest is similar. Right. And I think that that's where you can kind of put those types of papers, but I don't know. I'm, I'm going to put you on, uh, on Kevin because you're an editor of another journal that I had not mentioned. Do you feel like, for JTPE, papers like this fit the JTPE scope, or do you feel like JTPE has more, like, would this be in a special issue, or would this be in a normal article and it would get reviewed similarly as Sport Education and Society? You know, that's a really good question, Risto. Um, I think, uh, you know, traditionally, if you look at the history of the discipline, or at least the last, you know, 10 to 20 years, um, Quest uh, ha- has been uh, Quest, and then Sport Ed and Society, as you're alluding to, have been kind of the places where people can go uh, to publish non-empirical, more conceptual, theoretical work. Um, Quest has shifted. Just to be clear, they're 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 higher education exclusively now. 
And it's not just conceptual theoretical, it's empirical as well. It's anything related to kinesiology and higher ed. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have uh, kinesiology review now that publishes conceptual theoretical work. You know, traditionally the JTP has published more empirical research. Um, If if we were to get this paper submitted to the JTP, I think that it would have prompted Heather and I to have a conversation. We probably would have given it a read and, um, you know, I, I want to say that we would have gotten through it and been like, wow, this is really neat. It's really interesting. It's innovative. It's different. It would push the journal in a new direction, open it to a new audience, which are all things that we've been trying to do at JTPE over the last uh, a year and a half or so. So I want to believe that we would have sent it out for review. Um, I think that it probably would have taken some framing for for the typical JTPE reviewer, mm-hmm. not a knock against that person at all, but this wouldn't be a, probably a, a paper that the JTPE reviewer would be accustomed to receiving. Yeah, and it's the same thing for like ARA SIG 93. Like if this came in as a paper, that's just typical, like they we haven't accepted those types of papers. It has to be empirical research and even they're questioning like our review papers accepted and we take some review papers and, but having a, like this would be an invisible college. Like this would be a great invisible college presentation or conversation about it, but it wouldn't fit in the square hole that, you know, we typically would have for, for ARA. So, um, it, it wouldn't for shape either. I think, I think shape explicitly says that outside of, um, like scoping or systematic style reviews, they don't take papers like this as part of the research program. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the things you run into, so they use um, they use sarcasm in the actual paper. There's some informal language, uh, like you know, huh, h u h is used a couple times. Um, which, like, as I read it, it, it's fine. But I think in the review process that's going to strike the reviewer as like too informal and not serious. Um, and it's totally different because I look at it as published papers. So like now I'm reading it like this is legitimate, you know, knowledge. I think a reviewer might scrutinize that a little bit more. And um, I wonder, you know, the authors then might feel like this isn't the right place for, for the article because the reviewer clearly isn't kind of understanding where, where I'm coming from. But those are some of the things that are interesting, even if you just skim through it to kind of see how they um, use, because it, it is a serious paper, but there are times where they put in some little, um, they try to make it flow in a certain way with some sarcasm and some loose language. And, um, you know, I think that made it a little different. I, as a reviewer, Kevin, I don't know what I would have done with the paper because the writers, uh, they have an authoritative writing style. They're, I think they have a mastery of the topic. So I would have had a hard time being like, you you know, I want to reject this because it's clearly a good paper. And then I would have been looking at these things like, I don't know what to say about. I feel like I should get feedback and say um, that this should be addressed in some way, but I don't have that kind of uh, background to substantively address it. And so one of the challenges would be like getting someone who can yeah. give a fair review because every they deserve a rigorous review. Um, and not somebody who's just going to be like, okay, uh, you know, no comment type of thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think that there probably uh, are some people on the editorial board at JTP who we could have gone to who would have been good reviewers for this piece. But 
but I think it would have taken some intentionality and maybe finding some off-board reviewers as well, um, in, in inviting people who, who maybe uh, are a bit more grounded in this kind of work. And that also, if you think about, like, that happens in journals. You send certain things to certain people, right? And, you know, in a, in a bad worst-case scenario, an associate editor or editor or somebody sends something that they don't think is worthwhile to somebody that they know that they're going to reject, right? Versus a good case scenario like this, if you get a non-traditional article, which I think they admit that it is, especially at the end, they you know say, thanks for reading all the way. Like we know we took you on this kind of journey that you may have not been to, but that decision has to be made at the editorial level to send it like somebody let's say this goes to a journal journal xyz and the journal editor looks at it and says this is this is not the stuff i want they can desk reject it or they can send it to an associate editor who's like-minded and knows that this person's going to send this out to two quantitative reviewers and try to get this and they're just going to say this is crap this is not how you're supposed to write in academia and it's too informal reject. And I don't know, I, I, I'd love to actually, I did email um, both the authors to say that, you know, I really enjoyed the read and just to say like, thanks for having the courage to put something out there that is completely different than the norm to kind of shake up the field. But I, I'd be interested to hear what their, um, what their process was like did they get this rejected somewhere else and send it somewhere and how how hard was the peer review behind it um so one of the one of the other things that you know if you look at outside of the way that this was written it, it focused on this area of outsourcing in health and pe so this idea of using external providers to do teaching, using external companies to um, help teaching or help students. Uh, and they describe that the external provider was a parasite. And so the, uh, I'll read the definition that they gave uh, to kind of ground this. And if you think about an external provider, when I read these definitions, I think to me, it really clicked. So. Um, it says parasite owes much to the words three meanings in French. The first is, quote, someone who lives and or eats at the expense of another. The second is, quote, an organism that lives on or with a host from which it obtains nutrients, shelter or other benefit and which it may or may not harm. And the third is noise and static. And so the this idea of the external provider lives off of physical education. It may or may not harm it. It may harm it. It might, you know, show, I don't know, some online PE external resource comes in, starts using PE as an avenue, and then actually takes over physical education teachers' jobs. Now it goes from not harming to harming because the parasite was just kind of in there a little bit, but then it exploded. Um, and so I, I found that if you think about outsourcing, I found those three definitions to kind of be very, very specific to what outsourcing is. And it can be beneficial. It can be really, really detrimental. 
Um, how, how do you see outsourcing in health and PE in the US? Like, where are we? Because there's a lot of research in Australia about this and New Zealand about this. And we haven't re I mean, people talk about it in the US, but we have so much that we accept as normal. Spark PE is like all over the US and, and that's an external provider. You know, you buy products from Spark PE, you buy the folder or the internet, you know, accessible like lesson plans. And, you know, we have a lot of outsourcing fitness gram, you know, healthy wearable devices. Michael, thoughts? I, I mean, I think it, it can be really problematic. Uh, there's a couple examples where I think it can be really positive. And so I think getting to a place where we can identify what are these, um, what are the things that make it maybe a good partnership versus something that is problematic for students. And um, there's a lot of work uh, back in my hometown around outdoor education. Um, and this comes from like the U.S. Forest Service, our state parks, um, nonprofits that, you know, uh, support hiking and outdoor fly fishing and things like that. So these are skills that the PE teachers don't seem interested in teaching, uh, but that's a resource right in your backyard. It's free, it's publicly available. And so to bring that into the schools, I mean, I'm all for it. In fact, I want to see a lot more of it uh, um, happening because, you know, I'd love to see more people exposed to it. I wish I was exposed to it when I went through school there. And I'm, I'm working with the former student, uh, and he does Taekwondo and I watched him teach for five years in a high school. He's, he's amazing. And the teachers don't uh, like to teach that skill themselves if they're not um, Taekwondo experts. And there's actually a lot of Taekwondo gyms who do go into PE programs and, and teach. And again, that's a skill that uh, is really unique. Kids enjoy it. Um, I mean, I think that's great if we can expose kids to, um, to different things in PE. So, you know, I think that's positive and, and then still recognize this underlying system where nonprofits are creeping up and um, kind of siphoning money from school boards to go in and offer uh, physical activity programs that, um, you know, might not be trained to deliver that properly. So there might be some room for nuance in this debate. I, I yeah. Oh, go ahead, Aaron. Sorry, Kevin. Um, I mean, I'm going to agree with Michael, and I do think that we need to be clear here in the U.S., like what we define as outsourcing, because I think my brain, when I was when I think of outsourcing in the U.S., I think of where Michael's going, like these nonprofits or other for-profit organizations that offer like physical services and then bring those services and curriculum into the school setting. Um, whereas some of the things that you were mentioning, Risto, although have their own um, stigma that kind of like surround them, I don't know if I would like categorize them as the same as someone coming in and implementing a program as a traditional outsource. So I guess I would ask the group like, what it what does this look like in the u.s like what are we kind of defining as the outsourcing within physical education here in the u.s and i know that this is broader your your um 
it's not readership. Your listeners are broader than the U.S., but mm-hmm. I think that we're all U.S.-based scholars for the most part. So I'm just curious to hear everyone's thoughts. Yeah, but I think that the the idea is that the outsourced the outsourcing company does not survive on its own without physical education. And that that's the kind of the idea that they're using as this parasite. Like Spark PE, let's say, for example, Spark PE cannot exist unless there's PE in schools. If PE goes away, they don't have the teachers to teach that content. If, um, you know, the Taekwondo instructor who goes in and teaches and they have a dojo in town, they go in and teach a week's worth of PE classes during the day. Partially, they do that to recruit those students. Maybe they get five more students who pay $125 a month to go into Taekwondo classes after school. So those there's always that relationship, but it all goes down to physical education being present in schools, and therefore all of these things work off of it. And that's that's how that outsourcing they talk about um, Lee Sperka has that bilateral kind of relationship, but um, that they have to have one to work off the other. Otherwise, they don't exist. So PE, in a sense, has a tremendous amount of leverage and power about who we allow in. But I don't think historically we are even cognizant of who we allow in in general. It's just, hey, can you help me teach this lesson that I don't know how to teach? then come in. And I don't know if we do a lot of vetting is are all after school programs nonprofit? Nope. There's a lot of for profit after school programs that um, that make money and fund salaries based on the contracts that they make with school districts to allow them to run their program. That's touch rugby. It's cricket. It's, you know, tons of other programs. Um, I was going to say, you know, per the article, thinking about outsourcing, first off, putting myself in that position and similar to what you just said, Risto, to out of school time programming, I was like, oh my God, I'm an outsourced person because I'm doing my research in OST. I'm connected to PE teachers and physical education. We work in tandem most of the time. Um, So it made me critically think about that. But that said, and maybe because it's so personal in that way, and then following up on the point that the authors made about keeping an open mind, uh, so not immediately shutting it down because it's something that innately feels like a threat, um, considering the positives and the negatives before making any decisions. Um, I don't know. I think it made me think, you know, if there is finances associated with it, let's say the dojo is receiving additional funding. Uh, apologize if I didn't say that correctly. I need to get up to date with my martial arts. But if that is a outcome, that's not necessarily a negative. So if there's finances associated or, or benefits outside of PE associated with the outsourcing, that is okay. It's more is the student getting what they're supposed to get out of it and are physical educators still approaching it in the best way possible. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of physical educators that are not doing a fantastic job, unfortunately. And at times, if we're bringing in someone outside, the students might be getting a better experience, whether or not I want to admit that. So something that I think we have to keep in mind, outsourcing doesn't necessarily mean bad. 
Yeah, yeah, and I agree with that point entirely, Tori, and that, that, that's actually kind of what I was circling around in my mind as well. I think it comes down to intentionality and, and how, does, how does this partnership, and I emphasize that word because I think that these types of you know, um, industry, community, school uh, relationships need to be constructed in ways that are intentionally partnerships um, so that we're, we're uh, a, a, a pursuing and achieving common goals. Uh, we're looking for symbiosis rather than a parasitic relationship. Um, the reality, I think, though, is that um, alternative school structures and alternative structures for accomplishing goals of education and physical education are on the rise, uh, and they're probably not going away. And honestly, some of them are justifiable. I think as the physical education profession, we've been really resistant to anything that, that shifts and changes from in-school-based physical education. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic showed us that that's not always possible to do it that, that way. Uh, and there are other models and structures and approaches to schooling that, that, that may work. Uh, you know, we're still largely operating, how Austin talks about how we're operating off of this, um, you know, like 19th century model of schooling, turn of the 20th century model of schooling, where schools were constructed for an industrial age, uh, that don't mirror contemporary technological society. Uh, so, so I'm not saying that all outsourcing is good, but kind of in line with uh, what I think everybody else has said so far, uh, it can be good or it can be bad, just like almost anything else. It can be good or it can be bad. It's more about how it's used um, and, and how it's uh, presented. Yeah, and I, I thought about the same well, thing. Well, and I think the teacher plays a big role in that. What, right. What, what do you Sorry, Risto. So, no, I mean, I think, I, I think the teacher plays a big role in that because it's about if if you're bringing something in that you think might be good for your students or enhance your students' experiences for physical education while working towards whatever the goal is that you have set for your students, whether that's standards or something else, um, using like using whatever it is that you're outsourcing and applying it within your context is going to be important, right? But it is that relationship and making it meaningful for your students so that your students are receiving a quality experience. Yeah. And I think Tori, like I related a lot with you and, and your last comment that you said, you're an out of school program, you're doing work in out of school programs. And so are you the outsourcer, yes in a way and then did you put yourself in this mindset of like you are the parasite did you did you have that yes the whole time <laughs> yeah and so yeah. i i thought about that too and i'm like and and i think because of the way that this paper asked you to keep an open mind don't push the plate away right away i was like okay so am i the parasite if I'm using this and then in one of the places they said the professors are parasites because they are using that after school program or that school or that PE program to publish papers. And if they publish papers, they keep they, they get tenure, they get hired, they get, you know, hired out of grad school. And so that's part of their job. So we need after school programs, we need PE programs to be there for our work to be done. Yes, we are trying to work to make a, a better place for students and make more opportunities and 
with reach we try to provide free after school programming and i think that's very like positive in that sense but can you also agree that to a certain effect you are using that opportunity to advance your career because in reality that is what you're doing it sounds bad when you put it like that but i don't know like i don't know if everybody would agree with that statement right away kevin yeah, I, I think that goes back to symbiosis, Risto. I think it goes back to constructing um, experiences that, that bring stakeholders with different perspectives and vantage points to the table such that um, whatever is done is done in the name of everybody involved. I, I think that you're right. Sometimes faculty members kind of go out and they do their own thing and they have this this kind of goal to just collect data and advance their career and then they leave. And I think that that has created a context, at least in parts of the US, where schools and universities kind of have precarious relationships that are Mm -hmm. built on a lack of trust because they've seen too many times where faculty come in, they do their thing and then they leave. Um, And I have felt that way in the past too. I felt that way when we pulled out of Alabama, Um, when we were doing, Tori and I were doing the after school program down there. The grant ran up. I was gone. She was graduating. There was nothing for continuation, and we just left, and we left all those kids. So that stuff happens. Sometimes it, it happens for perhaps unavoidable reasons, uh, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And I think there are some really good examples of long-term, long-standing partnerships that build on collective action formation. Emily Jones does some really great work um, uh, in, in uh, her District 87 partnership where she's brought together stakeholders from different university entities and then different entities across the school to build something that's collaborative. Yeah, and I don't think the parasite has to be a negative. It just is, right? And understanding, and, and we did the same thing. When I left Cal State Fullerton, we had three years of programming uh, with REACH. We had good partner schools. We were expanding. I scrambled to get the current master students to run that programming for the year and they they pulled it off when I was in in Virginia for that one year but then they graduated and then I I no longer have that next person who I know that can run it and I don't have the funding or the money to hire some person to run this program and we you know provided the programming for free for the schools for 3 years And in the fourth year, or in the third year, I asked, are you willing to pay so you can pay these people to run the program? And they said, no. And so we ran it again for another year. And after that year, I said, look, these people are leaving. I need to offer a paid position to at least facilitate the program. And they're like, we don't have the budget. And then it dies. And it's like, well, and that, that to me, as as a parasitic outsourcer uh, in a nonprofit, I cannot figure out how to scale up. Like I can write papers about this. I can do really like qualitative, quantitative papers about, you know, students' experiences and how our program works. And I can run theoretical papers, but I have not figured out how to get past the footprint of my university or my colleague's university who also understands the REACH program. And Frankly, like we tried it in in Fairfax with me not present on on campus other than the training. And 
the students struggled because they didn't have, they were pre-service teachers who hadn't taught and coached before. So they were running their own after-school program for the first time and they didn't know how to do it. So I don't know how to expand and how to, you know, build up because like, I'm, I'm a college professor and not a business business professional who's looking to scale up and make money on, on the programming. So I don't, I don't know. That's something we talk about. Uh, my colleague, Kelly Simonton, you all know him, and I uh, work on a program after school centered on SEL, and we've talked about expanding it further. And it's a constant battle between wanting more people to have access to potential benefits of this outsourced curriculum and material or sharing it and it becoming something that it's not and actually becoming harmful uh, because it's not being taught appropriately or the teachers aren't getting the professional development they need or the people who are implementing it aren't getting associated funding so they don't have as much stake in the game. Um, so the scale up fears associated with outsourcing, you know, the parasite concept right now, I don't think it is harmful. We are working together, but mm -hmm. where could it potentially cross the line and become harmful? where no one, well, someone might be benefiting, but not the people that we want to benefit, not the kids. Yeah. So it's interesting to know that the um, place, there's a lot of places that have figured out how to scale up and build that capacity. Um, they're not universities. Um, they're these nonprofits who we, in a previous conversation, we might kind of view as a negative parasite that they're, you know, you're outsourcing to. But there, there are a lot of these programs that have, um, built capacity to serve school to serve a large number of students. They have the trust of school districts. They're being funded by um, school districts. Uh, some of them I would really strongly disagree with their approach, and others I have a lot of uh, admiration for. Um, so I, I work for um, a squash urban squash organization in Charleston, and they have a nationwide model now um, that they scaled up um, across the country. There's this group called Playworks nonprofit that does um, after school types of activities. There's a, a group here I work with called Communities in Schools, and they have chapters in uh, um, kind of more urban districts across the country. Um, and they have, you know, large capacity. And so that, that might be something we think about as universities is that maybe it's not necessarily that we need to scale up because I don't think we're good at that. And I don't think we, we, our workloads are structured that way. Um, but, you know, partnering with people who do scale up and um, with, we lose a little bit of control of, of our ideas when we do that, but that might be a consideration for expansion. Yeah. And Tori, maybe that's, maybe that's our paper with Kelly to talk about the troubles of scaling yeah. up and, how to keep fidelity in your program when you hand it over to somebody? How do you how do you check that the program's being taught the way it is after you hand over? You do the training, you do all this. Like, I don't know. I, but I I think that then previously, like if you look at like a negative um, parasite, like if you look at let's say again, I'm bringing back Spark P, but I I bring this back because. Uh, do you do you get uh, the Shape America emails with the with the digest or that they send right? So I get those every now and then, and I think it's because not a lot of people post on that. But um, I get like once a week maybe, and 
uh, Jody Lobianco wrote this reply, like I think a couple weeks ago, about Spark PE answering this uh, this question uh, for somebody like who's used Spark PE, is it worth it kind of thing. And, and she said she used it for her whole entire district and that all of her elementary teachers were teaching with Spark and they knew what they were teaching at the same time. And, you know, she could control that these things were being taught. And I think... I mean, that's what Spark PE was built for, was in California, teachers, general classroom teachers were teaching PE and they weren't doing anything. They were rolling out the ball. So as a parasite, that was a highly beneficial parasite to come in and teach those teachers how to teach PE and then give them some sort of format so they were actually doing something because they didn't have physical education teachers at the elementary level. And so I think in, in those cases it works and if you're trying to do big things on a large scale and you have teachers who don't have the capacity to do it then i think something like this outsourcing is it actually does work and it is beneficial yeah i think it definitely can be you know again i think it goes back to intentionality and purpose and um you know, does it does it make sense? Uh, is it a is it a relationship that's going to be mutually beneficial? Uh, and, and is it going to serve children? Uh, really, is at the center of the questions that we have to ask. And, and maybe it means expanding what we mean by physical education teacher. I mean, I think it's somewhat unreasonable to expect PE teachers to be an expert and be able to competently teach every single content area that you could theoretically incorporate into a meaningful physical education program. So, you know, if I am not a racket sports person, but I value racket sports, maybe I partner with USA Tennis because I know that they have um, uh, they have kind of outsourcing that they do where they'll bring people in to help teach tennis uh, to young kids in elementary schools, for example. So, so maybe I work with those people and we co-construct something and do it together. I think that there are really cool ways that it can work. I, I think where it's dangerous, though, is is if you were to say, oh, let's just have this group come in and take over. Um, yeah, I don't need to teach today. I, mm-hmm. think, I think that's where it gets dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in the Well, pan- you do see that, though. I, yeah, exactly. I mean, Go ahead, Aaron. So, um, you do see that. You do see that in schools. I mean, you have specifically like market to as Tori was saying school boards or principals where they're replacing physical education like we can provide you with a teacher or we like they come in and teach their curriculum and it is such a slippery slope and and really dangerous yep and that's big apple sports in in new york content expert that's Big Apple Sports in New York. Like they, they come in and they outsource and they advertise that and say, we can teach PE for cheaper because you don't have to pay benefits. You don't have to pay, um, you know, the, the rate that a New York City public school teacher needs. Like we can just outsource all of this. And, you know, in New York is super, super, New York City specifically is super non-compliant in their state regulations of how many PE teachers they have. A lot of schools have zero PE teachers and they just outsource everything or they just don't have PE and they just can't bring that volume. So what were you going to say, Kevin? 
before I rudely interrupted you. Oh, I just yeah, no, you're good. I, I I feel like we're all so kind to each other. Uh, it, it's it's so hard on these zooms to to avoid interrupting, but then everybody's so kind and apologetic. Um, I, I'm kind of in line with what we're talking about. Uh, you know, Aaron prompts a good point, and then you followed up on it, Risto. But these groups that come in may have content expertise. So if they're pushing uh, squash, for example, they might have expertise in squash, but they might have, might, but they might not have the pedagogical knowledge or the pedagogical content knowledge to translate that into instruction that's developmentally appropriate for children in PE. So, so that's why pedagogy matters, right? Like you can you can be a content expertise expert, but that doesn't mean you're going to be an effective instructor. Yeah, and we can't ignore these outsourcers as well. Like they, they write in the paper, if we start with the assumption that there's no possible place for external providers or healthy lifestyle technologies in our PE collectives and never can be, we condemn the members of these collectives to fight an interminable running battle down the generations. And it's this idea, if we shut them out completely, then they're just going to come in and take over at some point, or they're going to mount a bigger offensive. And so, and again, the parasite analogy here, metaphor works because you're letting them a little bit in. And then they, they can be mutually beneficial. Like it can help. And I think a lot of you have said this is if they bring in the content knowledge that you don't have, that's good. If you don't know how to teach tennis, but you think tennis is a good lifestyle sport, like, yeah, okay, bring somebody else or get the get the USTA free curriculum for elementary and middle school students. That's outsourcing, but if you don't know how to teach it effectively, and that's all they do. They are the U.S. Tennis Association. That is the only thing that they do. They're probably better experts than somebody who took a one-credit tennis class or, like at Mason, they learn pickleball in their, like net and target games class but we don't teach tennis necessarily so what what when did they actually sit down and learn about all of that because we teach certain net games but not all um can, can i ask a clarifying question yes i guess i'm wondering where the line is for what for when for when something's considered outsourcing versus when it's not i think this gets back to a question that Aaron asked at the beginning, and I think that it's important because it feels a little bit fuzzy to me right now. So, like, we've talked about Spark uh, as an example of outsourcing. Well, would pedagogical models, like would sport education count as outsourcing? What about teaching games for understanding or the tactical games approach where the book comes with scripted lessons? Does that constitute outsourcing? I, I, I guess I'm just kind of fuzzy on on um, where where it's outsourcing versus where it's um, adopting and adapting resources. I don't know that answer to that question, but I will ask Ben. But I think, I think my line would be, is is that outsourced? Is that organization or that thing? Are they benefiting in some way by using what I provide? So they talk about uh, healthy lifestyle technologies. So bringing in, we give you an accelerometer donation, but they collect all the data and all the lifestyle activity from those students. Yes, it's free 
for my students to get those accelerometers because company X gave them to us, or we got a grant to get them, but I am outsourcing and I'm then providing something in return. They, they should be getting something. That's, that's how I look at it. Spark gets money when you buy the curriculum. USTA gets the possibility of getting future people enjoying tennis and they have lifestyle, then they watch tennis matches. They understand the game. Like, so I think there has to be some benefit to the other one. Um, you know, is, is outsourcing, you know, if you go on social media and you find some lesson plans, is that outsourcing? I don't know if they make money off of it. Michael, do you have a opinion on this? Um, a little bit. I've always thought about it as in terms of like the delivery of content, um, which, but so like the Taekwondo example I gave earlier, if you bring in, you know, your local Taekwondo master, you know, and you're the teacher, you kind of sit, sit down and watch them teach. They, they teach the class effectively versus like I've, uh, a few years ago, I did some work in, um, first T, uh, partnered with them and they had a good elementary program and they would send staff in to support the teacher. So they'd provide equipment, curriculum, and they'd actually have a staff person go in to support the teacher. So the teacher delivered the lesson, but they were there to like help set up, to help clarify if they wanted like kind of a co-teacher that was fine, but it was really um, driven by the teacher. And I thought that was a really good, um, you know, partnership model that I, I wouldn't call outsourcing. It was, you know, using resources from outside, but that's kind of how I've thought about it. But I think people might think about it in different ways. I struggled with this too, because like you're saying, Kevin, I was like, okay, so models, we're using models. That seems like it could potentially be outsourcing by definition in this. And I wonder the concept of parasite, I would say that is a parasite but it might not necessarily be outsourcing in a parasite in that it makes noise or it it is something that a teacher can utilize that might benefit, let's say, sport education. If they're utilizing the sport ed text, then sport education, off, the authors of the text might be benefiting from them buying the book. So it's much more small scale, but in some way they are working together. One is impacting the other or vice versa, um, but it's it's smaller scale than something like Michael was describing where someone's going in and implementing a whole uh, class or, or session with actual students and individuals are involved directly. Yeah. And in that, in the paper, they, they say that formal definitions of outsourcing are bilaterally oriented. So meaning there is a school that outsources and an external provider to whom it outsources. Um, but then they talk about um, instances of outsourcing as an external provider. So who facilitates particular kinds of pedagogic communication by offering various forms of expertise, resources and facilities, professional learning opportunities, and markers of social distinction. Um, so these are more like the external providers but i think that your question there kevin of like where what is the line of outsourcing like i don't know is it outsourcing if you learn something from the university and you take it but that's your models book but then you have to buy the models book if you buy it as a teacher if you buy the tactical games book or something like that now is that or is that professional development 
So I, I think that's a slippery slope. I mean, sure. I think that that's like, yeah, it's definitely a slippery slope. I personally think that that's more like resources and tools to be able to help some a teacher be successful in a setting, right? Like whether they're profiting from it or not, these things were created with certain um, quality, I, I don't want to use that word, but um, with with something in mind to help implementation in a physical education setting, right? And I don't think that that necessarily, I personally just don't think that that necessarily seems outsourcing. I'm kind of along the lines of more bringing in external outside of a partnership just to kind of like teach and, and do, or in, in cases where you might have a blatant relationship where you're essentially using kids in a PE setting to, to benefit or profit. And when we think about some of these curriculums and stuff, I mean, again, there's other stigmas around them, but I don't know if I would, if I would label it as outsourcing personally. I would agree with, with, with that. Um, so, you know, like even, uh, even something like spark, uh, it might be like a, a gray area for me because it's, it's a curriculum, but the curriculum, if I understand it is implemented by the teacher still. So it's not like spark sends somebody to teach spark in your school. Um, I think that there's some elements of outsourcing when the whole curriculum is developed and packaged. Um, I, I think, I, I also think that has, some implications for teacher autonomy, teacher professionalization, professionalism, you know, you're, you're kind of de-skilling teachers if you're giving them boxed curriculum and telling them to use that. I'm not attacking Spark, uh, just, just some thoughts. Um, but, but I don't know if I fully would say that that is outsourcing in the way that I would say it is if you have a Taekwondo instructor come in and teach Taekwondo while you as the PE teacher just kind of chill on the side. And I think a good case example here is comparing that to Open Phys Ed. So Spark costs money. Yeah. Open Phys Ed does not. Open Phys Ed is that then outsourcing. Well, obviously they're owned by U.S. Games or it's pushed by U.S. Games. So like once you have the Open Phys Ed person come over to your school and do your professional development, they bring a bunch of gear and they always drop off those flyers and they're like, hey, you can also order gear from us. But, you know, Open Phys Ed does it. But it's also a, a tremendous service to get new ideas or for, for, you know, our, our students use open phys ed all the time to understand like, okay, what are some ideas? Cause they have zero experience going into making those lesson plans, you know, open phys ed doesn't cost any money. So does that count as the same level of outsourcing as a for-profit company that, you know, I don't remember who spark was bought by, but scholastic maybe, but, you know, like, is Open Phys Ed the same outsourcing as Spark? They do essentially the same thing. One is hiding... I would argue that... No, go ahead. I'm just saying, I think all these examples, based on what I understood from the article and the definition, are outsourcing. But outsourcing isn't negative in itself. So if it's a parasitic uh, outsource, it still needs these it needs PE, open needs PE, or it doesn't matter. It doesn't need to exist. So it's a parasite in that way, even if they're not financially benefiting. So they're living off of physical education, but they're not 
harming physical education. Whereas financially, pulling from PE or PE teachers, not necessarily a harm, but it is like a, a loss in a sense for, let's say, Spark in this example to grow as a company or an organization financially, then they're a parasite that could be harmful if you're looking at it from a financial standpoint or something along those lines if someone misuses Spark. So I'd say outsourcing is present in all of these examples. It's just whether or not it's a harmful parasite. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Toria. It's it's the end result that we're worried about. Is it helpful? Because none of us are creating some, you know, even like things that go on Moodle and Blackboard and your learning management system. There are some very effective tools that are outsourced by different companies that make it make it easy, make it easier for you. Like a book is cheaper through McGraw Hill online through this portal than a hard copy book. Somebody had to do that, right? The the book I use for my field innovation games class is um, is an online book, but it also comes with videos the refereeing signs, the, the, all the skills, all the games, all of them are little links. And I could do that if I had a year off and made videos and had a big budget to make it. But McGraw-Hill does it and the book's 35, 40 bucks online. Like for all of that resource, you have to have that outsourcing to be able to teach effectively and that to me is a net positive now if that book was four hundred dollars it would be a whole different story but it's it's a fairly inexpensive book for what it what it provides and so there's a lot of these things that are positive um i just think that we need to be cognizant of who we're, who we're letting through the door and what their ulterior motives are and if we can keep those in check i think welcome the parasites um, so any uh, any other final uh, comments before we before we sign off? Anything that's really burning desire for you to talk about? Besides ICEP twenty twenty four in Finland, so that's that's a highlight. I know Michael's coming because uh, he is uh, keynoting our our conference. So thanks for coming there. So. All right, I see no hands up. Uh, no one wants to make a final comment, so I will cut this off here. Um, thank you, everybody, for for coming on, and and I really, really hope that if you're listening to this, that you pick up this paper and read it. Um, I found it super, uh, super interesting, a really cool, innovative way to to write it. So thanks to the authors and thanks to the article club. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree 
revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.